Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. The integration of faith and spirituality at its core is the ability to humbly value the beliefs and perspectives of the client system in front of us. Many therapists are taught this is important in all aspects of a client's life and that it's important to be culturally competent. Yet many are uncomfortable with implementing the integration of faith or spirituality into their clinical work. Some therapists believe erroneously that in order to work effectively with a client's faith or spirituality, they must subscribe to it as well. Today on the AMFT podcast, we're going to talk about how to integrate religion, spirituality into the practice of systemic individual couple and family therapy. We're going to answer questions like, what is the ethical integration of faith and spirituality into systemic therapy? What does it look like to view faith and spiritual integration with a stance of humility? How can we assess how important a client's faith or spirituality is to them? And can we help a client deepen their spiritual connection if we ourselves do not have that as a systemic family therapist. No one better than to talk about this subject matter within Dr. Chris Habin, former AAMFT president and current chair of the new Topical Interest Network, Spirituality and Clinical Practice, also abbreviated SICP. Chris is a professor of MFT at Friends University in Kansas City. And he is the program director at Friends University Masters of Science in Family Therapy program. He's currently a clinical fellow. He's had two terms on the board, including a five-year commitment as president-elect, president, and past president. And he has been honored for his contribution to AMFT with the Divisional Contribution Award. He's also an improved supervisor. You'll hear a lot about Chris today, including his own spiritual and faith journey and how it impacts his development as an MFT. And I learned a lot today and I hope you will as well. We'll be back to share some really good resources with you when our interview is over. Eli back on the AAMFT podcast. So happy to be joined by past president of the AMFT and now one of the leaders of the Spirituality and Clinical Practice Interest Network, Dr. Chris Habin. And Chris, I've known you for a long time, but we've never gotten to speak on this topic. So I'm actually looking very forward to this because I always learn something when I talk to you. But for our listeners that are not familiar with you, the first question we always ask about our expert is, how'd you get interested in systems thinking, MFT in general, and then specifically integrating spirituality into the practice of systemic therapy? First of all, Eli, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. I have immense respect for you and all that you have done in your own career. And I appreciate the service to AAMFT as a former president of the association. I just am thrilled by the work that you do and I really enjoy these podcasts. So it's a real honor for me just even to be involved. To get to your question, I think for me, this integration really goes back quite a long ways. Like many people in the world, I set out into college thinking, boy, I think I would really like to have a career in medicine. And then I ran into organic chemistry and things changed a bit, but I- <laughs> that, That's I funny, up, not to get you off, but that's exactly my story too. That was the weed out for me. <laughs> or go, yep. Yeah. So I switched organic chemistry to a field I had never had been involved with before, believe it or not. I, I wound up taking a course in psychology and kind of fell in love with this field. It was new to me. And I was at a small church-related school in Michigan, 
And to be honest with you, Eli, I'd always thought that if I didn't, things didn't work out in a field of medicine, I had thought about a ministry career. And so I was one class short of having a double major at my college, one in psychology and one in religion. And one of the things that was really meaningful to me in my college experience was a course called Christianity Encounters Other Faiths. It just was so helpful as a religion major, I think, to study other faith traditions. And I just became fascinated in a couple of things. One, in understanding the religious traditions and the spiritual practices of people other than my own sort of Judeo-Christian lens that I was operating from. And I've really valued how, as I began to learn and understand other faith traditions, it really helped me understand my own. It challenged me. It invited me to rethink some of my own assumptions, and it actually made my own faith tradition stronger. So over the course of my life, I think I've become fascinated with the whole field of religion and spirituality. There was a book that came out a while back, quite a while back, I think by Karen Armstrong, called The History of God which was, again, an interesting walk through a variety of religious and spiritual kinds of story. I also, with that ministry idea in mind, I did my master's training at Fuller Theological Seminary out in Pasadena, California, thinking at the time that I would, back ending into this field, I think not really doing a great amount of research about what MFT really was, but thinking that this could be a field or a degree that would help me if I were serving in a church environment in some way. And again, the systemic notion was really new to me, and it's no discredit to the psychology undergrad experience that I had, but I just fell in love with the systemic nature of our field. I think there became a synergy for me when I was in the seminary experience where there were efforts to do integration with the field of study and from, at least in the seminary, from a Judeo-Christian perspective. And I was not always satisfied with a lot of the work that was out there. Sometimes you would find people that would have an idea and then they would look for some kind of scriptural text somewhere and try to make those fit together. And it didn't feel really integrative to me. But what I love about marriage and family therapy and at least my own religious and spiritual tradition is, to me, so much of spirituality centers on relationship. And the apex, in my mind, of what we do as marriage and family therapists is relationship. So I think there is just uh, an incredible synergy that exists between some of the primary assumptions of our field and spirituality. And I really have come to believe that as I become more and more in tuned and thinking and processing about spirituality. And I think about the concepts that as a professor of MFT now for 23 years, and I just find so often I hear myself share ideas about particular models that we're teaching. And I think, man, that sounds really similar to things that I'm talking about in the spiritual side of my work. If I'm honest with you, there have been times when I've been in my own sort of church setting and I've heard a message of some kind and I think to myself, I might have used different words. But I feel like I just gave the same story to my students this very week. So I just have always found there to be this great synergy between a spirituality in particular and the work that, that we do. And I suppose there's a lot more to that, but I think in my own journey, that's just always been something that's been omnipresent, if that makes any kind of sense. Oh yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you said so many things there that resonated with me. First of all, that even without the kind of systemic language, once you learn to think systemically, it's really hard to think any other way. We hear that all the time on the podcast. Also, these parallel processes, these isomorphs that you talk about, that you point out to your students, and it's very much connected to your spiritual life. Now, while there are great MFT programs, like which one you came from, Fuller, housed within a religious institution. There's also many people that pick MFT because they don't want this type of religious or faith-based counseling. So let's just distinguish very early on, because everybody may think about this a little differently. How do you define the difference between spirituality and religion? Because for many people, they get their spirituality through religion, but there's many people in and for the scope of our talk today that don't necessarily adhere to any organized religion, but are very spiritual people. So what's the difference between spirituality and religion? 
Yeah. And I think you ask 12 people, you might get 14 different ideas about that. Eli, to be honest with you, I think when we think of religion, religion tends to have an institutional kind of quality to it. I think it's, it has more of a social group of some kind that might be ascribing meaning and value to this life experience in this world in which we live. It, religion will tend to maybe solidify or attempt to solidify spirituality into doctrines and forms and rituals and scriptures and rules of conduct and how things are practiced. And where on the spirituality side, it feels like it's a bit more individual. It's much, much more about a, an individual searching for the sacred in this particular life, in this particular world. It's intuitive in nature. I think it's about humans about the business of trying to discover meaning in terms of why we're here and that type of thing. Religion can be more culturally informed. Spirituality can be a bit more individual in nature. Religion tends to be, as I said, a bit more institutional and static, and spirituality tends to be a bit more intrinsic, I think, flexible, adaptable. Ken Pargament, who I will probably reference a lot, an emeritus psychologist from Bowling Green, University, who I think has done some of the best work out there, uses a lot of the idea that spirituality in many ways is an individual search for the sacred, and that sacredness can vary from person to person. But when we think of a religion, we are thinking of, and we think of a variety of different religions, and within religions, denominations, all that have doctrines and practices and institutions about how things ought to be. What's really interesting is if Gallup polls are anything to put any kind of faith in, the number of people who really anymore would identify a belief in God is dropping. People attending church now is below a church or synagogue or any kind of religious institution is dropping now to less than half. So while religiosity is decreasing, spirituality is to, to some degree, but not nearly as much. And it would make some sense because I think there's been a lot of people who have experienced in some ways a measure of institutional harm or disappointment or frustration that can come out of those more inflexible types of experiences that religion can sometimes. Now, I'm not trying to knock religion per se, but I can understand why there's some movement in that particular direction. Does that help or does that muddy things? No, that's wonderful. And I think this idea that you can connect to something sacred and it doesn't have to be, and for many people it's not. I've gone to church with my wife and kids and had good experience. When I think of my most meaningful spiritual experiences in my own search for the sacred, they don't happen majority of the time within four walls of a place of religious worship. So I think that also leads into this idea of spirituality being important to mental health, and especially what we do is MFTs, relational health. And when I started in the field 23 years ago as a student, and many of my cohort and young professionals at the time, they picked a program because they did not want a religious bent to learning how to help people, how to be a relational healer, so to speak. So it was a biopsychosocial model. And now it's many times a biopsychosocial spiritual model. So I'm curious thinking about how you would introduce this topic to clients in an opening meeting that lets them know a little bit about your orientation, but also lets them know that you're going to be tapping in to these strengths, which is very much inherent to how an MFT would work. So how do you think spirituality relates to mental and relational health? And then how do you start introducing this to client systems when you don't know what their belief system is? Yeah. Well, there's a lot there. And if I get sidetracked, please guardrail me back in a bit, Eli. But people like Pramawash and others have suggested that spirituality and religion to some degree offers a good measure of relationship to mental health and that spirituality for many people can be a source of resilience. Again, Pargaman has written a whole text on the coping aspects that religiosity and spirituality can provide. So for many people, Spirituality is a place that can help them overcome adversity. It can be a place where they can strengthen themselves in times of distress. It can be a place of resource. 
The church itself can also be a great place of community, of relational connection. I think I'll have another thought about that in a minute, but there's a lot of research evidence to suggest that, that there is aspects of a healthy spiritual life can be impactful on one's own physical health. So there's interesting research being done on that. When it comes to issues that are matters of the human condition, the idea of just facing death, for example, something that we all are going to face in our own particular way can can be a place where spirituality can be helpful. Some of the the work in addiction recovery has not an overt nature, but they there can be many times there is a history of spiritual influence in terms of the 12-step process even and how we deal with addiction. When we think about our work with couples, families, and so on, and focusing on relationship, whenever there's an I and a thou, I think, Eli, there are places where we have great moments of connection, and if you and I have time together, we also are going to have places of disappointment and frustration with each other. And I think that's just part of the human nature. Uh, Spirituality and religion can really help facilitate forgiveness and reconciliation. I know myself, I've had to, in my personal life and in my professional life, I've had to, I think, stand before people and say, "I, I need to just come to you and apologize for the way I was or the way I act, the way I dismissed you in some way. And sometimes I'm struck by how foreign that is for some people to have folks who really are about the business of, I want to be about reconciliation with you. Carrie Aponte and others have suggested that spirituality can even create a kind of activism for the suffering of other people. I think for myself, when I think about spirituality and clinical practice, there was a theologian by the name of Paul Tillich who talked about what he called the four ultimate anxieties that exist. Part of it includes just the fate and the destiny that we have been handed in life those things that we can't really control, but here's what I've been handed that I may not like, that may not seem fair, but here's what I've been given. Or the anxieties that we all face of the terminality of this human experience that all of us are going to face death. And what does that mean? And Tillich suggests a fourth ultimate anxiety of meaninglessness that many times folks can have an active life where they're accomplishing things and successful in their world, but they seem to be lacking a sense of meaning. Not too many years ago, there was a very best-selling book called The Purpose-Driven Life. And part of me thinks there's a hunger for what answering the larger questions of what am I doing here? And I think that meaninglessness that Tillich was addressing years ago might be tied to that. And this notion of fourth kind of anxiety that he calls an ultimate anxiety of emptiness. I don't know about you, Eli, but I imagine that your experience is like mine, that I have a lot of clients that come in and there's what they present on the surface. And one of the things, again, that I love so much that I think our field in particular is good at, not to say that others aren't, but when we start thinking systemically, we're thinking beyond what's the presenting issue and we're very interested in the processes that are going on behind that. So a person might come in with a particular complaint, but behind those presenting issues might be lurking some of these ultimate anxieties. I don't know about you. I don't have a lot of people that come in and say, Chris, I'm coming in because I'm just wrestling with meaninglessness in my life. Now, while that can happen, I think people are coming in, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling off. Something's not right in my life. I'm not connecting. I'm not sure what I'm doing. And so I feel like some of these larger fundamental human conditions, spiritually informed kind of ideas Uh, are lurking behind that. And it gives, I think, the practitioner sort of a notion of some larger things to be thinking about. Perhaps more simply, Larry Crabb is another person in Judeo-Christian world who has vacillated between world's fields of counseling and spiritual formation. And there's one thing that he says that I just have really adopted for my own and I like a lot, and that is I think that almost all the things seem to come into my office clinically, either as a supervisor or with clients of my own, it seems that so much of what people are hungry for are two things. Am I safe? And do I matter? Safety and significance. And I think a lot of religious and spiritual questions are also endeavoring to get at 
those larger questions about, am I safe and do I matter in some way? So when you ask about how does that, how does mental health and relational health interface with that? Those are some of the things that more philosophically come to mind for me. On a more practical level, when I think about, okay, one of the challenges I suppose is lots of people come into my office. I just happen to be practicing in a world right now where I don't have, (laughs) because I've got my hand in a lot of different things, I have a small clinical practice and I don't have a large practice that I'm managing with a website that's laying out very clearly a lot of my spiritual or religious assumptions. But sometimes people will get a reference to me or I'll get a referral from somebody because they know I have a bit of a, a faith background of some kind or that this is an area that I'm interested in. Others have no clue about that. Either is absolutely fine. One of the things that I do actually do on my intake assessment is I ask people a question. I don't have it in front of me, but I, I try to word it as, you know, for some people's religion and spirituality has been a place of great comfort and resource. And for others, it's been a place of difficulty and pain and hurt and frustration. And I'm curious how things might be for you. And so even before they come in, I have a sense based on how they have responded to that. Uh, I have a sense about where they might be spiritually just in response to a question like that. Now, one of the things that, again, stealing from people like Ken Pargament, we'll talk about some people will come in with very explicit issues that might be faith-related in some ways. Those would be things like, I feel like God is punishing me, or I feel like there's something going on in my church or my synagogue or my mosque, or something like that. Or sometimes there are more implicit things that are a bit more like what I was seeing earlier, where person's not coming in and mentioning those spiritual things, but there might be lurking behind that a larger question about safety and significance and some of those ultimate realities that I have. And and so sometimes those can just, I'm just like with anything else, this is more of a lens for me than a prescriptive sort of thing. So I'm sometimes there's a place where it feels like here's a place where I might enter this conversation. So for example, Not too long ago, I had a student who was sharing a situation where she was working with a family, and the young person was really wrestling with some of their gender orientation. They were considering, they just were really uncertain about some of those things, and their parents both reacted quite negatively about that and would say things that I found really hurtful. I found myself almost reacting, if I'm honest with you, quite negatively towards the parents who were saying things. You'll be always be welcome, but I'm not sure your friends will be. And I found myself initially with the student getting reactive myself. And as I thought about it, I began to think about four questions that Ken Pargament suggests to enter into those conversations. And Those questions are, do you see yourself as a religious or a spiritual person? Are you affiliated with a religious or a spiritual community? To what degree has your problem that we're dealing with today affected you spiritually or religiously? And has your religion or spirituality been involved in the way that you cope with the problem? And I calm myself down, reminded myself of these things, and talked to the student about, I wonder what would happen if we engaged the parents with this question. So I'm getting a sense that this is a pretty significant religious or spiritual issue for you. And the student came back a couple of weeks later and said, I took your advice and I led with those questions and it, parents softened, changed. And I think they felt a bit hurt and understood about what they were doing. And it then opened up an opportunity for us to have real dialogue. And I think we're making progress in terms of finding a measure of healing. And I think in part of that was me not getting reactive myself and then, and using some of these questions as a way to slide into those types of things. Again, I'm trying to ask initially on an intake form about some of those questions. So I just have an idea. And for some, if a person says spirituality has been an injury for me, I might wait for an opportunity. Probably the best advice I ever got ever from a supervisor and I don't think he knows to this day how meaningful it was to me, but he, I remember being a, in, a, in my doctoral program and my doctoral training, and I, we were back in the days where we were doing these soap notes, and I get to the P of plan. I said, I'm having a hard time 
figuring out how do I plan for what's coming up? Because how do I know what's going to happen? And he said, Chris, what if you just said you're going to wait for an opportunity for X to happen? And that not only helped me with that particular moment, but that had a fundamental kind of change for me. And, and in a similar way, that I apply that in this spiritual kind of way. I'm not going to probably come in with an agenda of I'm looking for something here and I'm going to impose this spiritual, this religious position, but I have this sort of spiritual lens and there might be a time where I'm waiting for an opportunity where I'll just feel like this might be a place it would be meaningful to enter. And if it's not, I don't. If it seems like it is, I might. Sometimes I have people that on the other side of things will call and say, I really want to make sure that I'm with a therapist where I can talk about religious and spiritual things. I'm like, okay. And so I feel more of an invitation to press into some things. And I don't know how this will sound, but I remember a person one time who was really dealing with the lower sense of self. And they had a very strong kind of Christian position. And I found myself saying, if what the story of Christianity as I understand it is about, if there is truth to the idea that a God exists and that somehow there was this incarnate kind of experience manifest in this one person who lived this life and then somehow who died and then literally came alive again, and if that somehow has paid your debt for this human condition in some way, if that's, if that's what's giving you meaning in life, how can you not matter? And so it was a way for me, I think, to try to get at that larger question about do I matter and my importance. And I was actually, in a way, I felt like utilizing their religious assumptions. Hopefully, it doesn't sound like against them, but it's like what would happen if you lived into the belief system that you in particular have? Which, by the way, is why I think it's important for us to do our best to I try to be as informed as I can about the multitude of religious perspectives that are out there and the teachings that are out there so that I have some kind of working knowledge about different faith structures. The Ken Pargament questions again, one more yeah. time for our listeners, those four questions, I think they're great. Yeah. He suggested as an initial kind of spiritual assessment, do you see yourself as a religious or a spiritual person? Are you affiliated with a religious or a spiritual community? Has your problem or, or has what we're dealing with today affected you spiritually or religiously? And has your religion or your spirituality been involved in a way to help you cope with your problem? What his notion is, this is just a, sort of an introductory way to do an initial spiritual assessment. And if it seems like there's a more explicit religious issue, you might evolve into more and more. There are spiritual assessments that are in the literature that would be more explicit in nature that you could utilize. But I just like these questions as a way to enter them. And you obviously would modify them to fit your own sort of expression. You don't need to articulate them exactly as I said. So I think for my student who just gently entered into this system with, I'm really recognizing that your religiosity and the spiritual impact of what we're talking about here is really important to you. And it seems if I denied that or we didn't talk about that, we'd be missing a whole important piece about what's going on here. And that just opened up really meaningful conversation. So much good stuff in what you've been saying the last few minutes. The way I look at it, and I like those questions too, because they can be brought into dialogue. They can be behind opening intake. And like you said, then you make note and you have the space ready if it presents itself. You are also talking about rarely is somebody going to come in with a presenting problem that is that direct. It's around these anxieties or depressions or these core issues? Am I safe? Do I matter? And being able to draw the parallel, I think as someone who spent the last 20 years of his career studying common factors and these client factors, I, I tell people that, hey, if it is a strength for you, I want to know about it. And if it's something that is not even current now, but it has been in the past, I think we'll see this too. We'll have clients that have used spiritual or religious supports in the past, but are no longer using them. So I'm a curious guy. So I want to know anything that has helped them build resilience, build connection. Yeah, I want to tap into that. So another uh, Eli, question. If I can interrupt yeah. you, like, sure. I, I'm so glad you brought up the common factors thing, because to be honest with you, in some of my own efforts to 
talk about and teach spirituality here in my own program, believe it or not, I really like to draw upon your work and the common factors because I think a lot of this has to do with what are the variables that the client is coming into and their own readiness, as well as what are the therapist variables that are related to this. And then how do we make this, some of these ideas fit into the theory that we're using that are informing the therapist's piece of that? And even is there a kind of placebo effect, even in terms from just having space to be able to bring up a religious or a spiritual kind of piece? I think the work that you all have been doing in that, I have actually tried to use that as a framework in my own efforts to try to build some of these things together in a meaningful way. So for you to mention that, I just think is really intriguing. Yeah, there's a side plug in the new book that AMFT current president-elect, your friend and colleague is mine, Adrian Blow, and I, we talk about spirituality in a sense of not only client factors, if they have that as a strength, you, as I was saying, you want to be able to understand that and tap into it, but also in the chapter where we talk about hope as a common factor. And if somebody is hopeless, tying them in, why I like the concept of spirituality is both a very personal thing that can soothe and provide relief. It's also something that can provide connections to others and union with others. We think of a faith community, somebody that is cut off and depressed or anxious, like you said, and that's what they come in with, but tying them to a group of people built in community. So it works as we think systemically as a social support. It works to give people, as you said earlier, these other things, we have it built into kind of rituals around forgiveness and letting go. It works in so many ways. So you said something interesting that when I'm getting interviewed by a potential client, people that this is very important to, they want to know what are your spiritual beliefs? So sometimes young therapists, you and I are both trainers and supervisors. They're like, oh, I've been told I don't know. That's a personal question. And instead of answering the question, the therapist says, why is that important to you? So I've always thought, and maybe this is 23 years into my career, but it's like, hey, I'd want to have an authentic dialogue. I want to do both to tell them what I believe, but also ask them why that's important to them and assessing fit. So I always say on the show, clients have enough issues. They shouldn't have to fit into our box of working. We should be flexible enough to fit to them. So what do you think as far as advising our professionally younger listeners when somebody asks them this directly and they are uncomfortable answering the therapist? Yeah, I think that's a great question. One of the things that comes to mind is I think Harry Aponte once suggested that spiritual engagement requires humility and daring. And I like that because I think when we respond to those kinds of questions with humility, and I can hear the flavor of that in your own introduction to that question, I think if I respond to that with a very authoritarian, this is the faith system that I'm a part of, and this is it, baby, that's not responding that with humility. But I like the daringness of being able to do just what you were doing, of saying, this is an important issue. It seems like it's important to you. I will, in my office, I have my degrees are hanging on the wall. So if they pay any attention, they'll see that I have a seminary degree. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but it just is a place to say, obviously, the faith background is important to me. Sometimes I will get clients that will ask because I think they, for whatever reason, want to make sure that I'm either safe enough or a person who will understand what they're talking about. And so I will sometimes say, look, I have a faith background that's Judeo-Christian and its influence. It's a mainline sort of a approach. I really don't get into here all the doctrinal things that I believe, but just to give them a flavor of my own experience. And again, I try to do that with great humility and I'm interested, as you were suggesting, I'm interested in, does that help you? Does that give you what you need? And I'm interested in where is that for you? And this sounds, see, that's just a natural lead in to Pargament's question. It sounds like this is an important issue for you. Can you tell me about your spiritual life? Now, you are a humble guy. I've known you for 15 years. So another thing, I think the way this presents is, again, you don't have to be overt about it. People that have a spiritual core, it kind of comes through in their way of being. They don't need to promote it. It just, it comes across in a kind of grounded connected way. In fact, we've never, you and I have never had a talk like this in all of our dealings, but I know that you are a man of great faith because it just comes through your way of being. So I think it just 
It's almost like a lot of times you don't have to say it. It is a grounding spiritual present that emanates through a therapist that has this. But you brought up that great story of our scenario of parents and a teenager, because I'll see this a lot as well, where, hey, we raised you this way. What are you doing? We didn't raise you that way. Whereas you've dropped a lot of great psychoeducation this hour and who we know in individual and human development is it's quite natural in emerging adulthood in your teen years to challenge some of the ways you were raised and some of the beliefs. So actually developmentally, parents get very offended and they take it very personally. They failed as parents when a young person challenges some spiritual or religious tradition in which they were raised. But as MFTs, we know that actually that could be pretty developmentally normal, as I said. So how do you work with systems? And in that example, teenagers in a family, or it could be members of a dyad, a couple that have very different beliefs. How do you work with these systems where there's very different beliefs within the system? I have had couples that come in who have very different political beliefs. They might have different cultural backgrounds of some kind. And I think the spirituality and the religious piece of that is very similar. Again, we take a position of humility and a position of curiosity. And so if those kinds of questions that we were asking come into the conversation, or they bring up, maybe if a couple brings up, we're just very different in terms of our religious assumptions. Help me sort out where do you, where do you bump into those types of things and be curious about it and try to understand that. One of the things, Eli, that I just find really helpful, I'm a big fan of John Gottman's work and of all the things that he's done. I love the juxtaposition of two words that he puts together when he talks about in meaningful dialogue successful couples will accept influence from each other. And I, I love so much the juxtaposition of those two things because accepting influence to me implies I'm not trying to be who, if you need me to be this particular faith system so we get along, I'll just do, that's appeasement. And I don't think that relationships do really well when we're appeasing each other, but accepting influence really requires a dialogical stance. It's not monological, but it's truly dialogical where I really want to understand where you're coming from, why it's meaningful to you, being able to even get to a place where this might feel more Boeing in nature, where we're balancing the individuality of ourself with the togetherness of another person, where I might say, Eli, it makes a, I can totally see knowing you as I do, I can understand and your own experience you, I can see where you come to that conclusion and it makes sense to me. Even if I disagree with that, that makes total sense. And also to, to be in a place where I am even letting myself being influenced by that. As I told you at the start of our conversation, one of the things that I love the most that has actually helped me in my own personal faith process is studying a multitude of religious and spiritual positions, many of which I may not completely resonate with, but they help me sharpen my own position. And so I think when we can help parents and children, when we can help husbands and wives, partners with each other, friends, when we can, I think, really help them facilitate meaningful dialogue around those areas, like we would with anything else, where we're balancing your own kind of authentic self that I wouldn't want you to throw out at the door, I just want you to hold on to, but is, am I holding on to it with enough structure, but loosely enough that it can be modified as I dare to have myself influenced by other people? If in my own journey, I can remember, I, my grandma has passed away a long time ago, but I just remember coming to her one time and I don't even remember what it was, but this is probably shortly after one of some of my own seminary experience. And I was sharing something with her and it probably didn't match with her very theologically. And she took an authoritarian position, was really trying, I think, to minimize what I was saying. And I think part of it was, if what I was suggesting was true, a huge part of her theology that she would lived by for 80 years of her life would have to radically change. And I think she didn't want to. And so I'm really trying to propose the opposite of something like that. Do we have enough faith in our faith that we can allow it to be challenged and explored by others around us. Uh, so, I mean, I think with a couple where it's different, it gets a little more challenging. So you have your sort of starting point. I have mine. What is our shared meaning? Again, another notion that Gottman would really say is there, are there places that we can find 
overlap and how does that then inform to what degree is this going to influence that matters how we're raising our kids and that type of thing. I know that's awfully vague, Eli, but I mean, it's that concept of dialogue and allowing, I think, having the faith to let others inform you and introduce new ideas is really healthy for ourselves. And I don't want to ever want to undermine parents, but I like what you were saying. It's like your child is doing what they're supposed to do. They're asking questions. That's a good thing. They're invested in really trying to explore something that they can own for themselves. And I imagine as a parent, that's what you really want. What you were saying made me think about some other parallel processes in the sense that we do this as therapists too, back to our models. We get hooked up on our model specific language when really we're talking about these universal mechanisms and the same thing with faith traditions or spiritual traditions. Even as I say, uh, my spirituality isn't God or anything like this, but if we strip down the language, it's a very similar feeling that the person gets or the connection comes in and people get so tied up in traditions in certain language and not strip it down to these things, the shared meaning and accepting the influence. So I can't agree enough with you. So that's broad in a good way. Cause sometimes if we make it broad, we can see the commonalities. We get too much in the weeds. We lose these points of connection that can unite people through talking about their spiritual beliefs, whether that be families or couples or even therapists and clients. So you mentioned Bowen a second. I also thought as you were talking, like Bowen used to say, well, you can't get anyone passed to a higher level of differentiation than where you are as the therapist. A flip on that, I'm curious what you think. If I'm a therapist that doesn't have a strong sense of spirituality, can I help a client develop one? What do you think about that? Okay. So that's a neat intersection with what you are, what you're talking about with Bowen, because I think my initial thought is if I am a poorly differentiated person, I will probably struggle with this. If I have been doing things to, to advance my own level of differentiation, I know Bowen says it's hard to do as much as I can. I think that we might be a little bit better at that uh, as an initial knee-jerk response. But to answer your question specifically, of course I do. I think there are so many things that clients bring into my office that I have zero experience with or connection to, but it's very meaningful to them. And to suggest that I can't be helpful to them because I don't have this history with this particular thing or this particular process, I don't think any of us would say that. So again, you were talking about students or younger professionals earlier. I think there are some real things that are important for us to think about. There is, for some, a kind of antagonism or an injury that comes from religious experience themselves. There are ethical concerns that we have about wanting to make sure that we are not imposing any way on people, that we are that we are mindful of what people are doing and so on. But I, I still think that even if you wouldn't identify yourself as a religious or a spiritual person, would imagine that you would approach as you would any other person. Well, tell me about your world. Help me to understand that. I'm interested in how spirituality informs what you're doing. Not so that you can knock it down, so that you can say, that would make sense to me. I can see where you're coming from. You can effectively join with them. So I I don't think there's any problem in that at all. I'll ask you one more question before that. I'll leave you with this. One of the things, I don't necessarily have a calm, soothing energy like you do, but I am a curious guy and an irascible spirit. So one of the questions in my common factors approach to working is certainly always ask for feedback and ask clients what their pivotal moment is. But one I've been adding lately is sharing what I learned from the client, because I think this is a profession. It's not like pharmaceutical sales or something I would say where you can age out of it. As long as you stay curious and connected to the experience with the system, you can always learn from people. So Whenever I'm with someone that has a strong sense of spirituality that, again, I'll tie back to their strengths uh, and maybe has nothing to do with the presenting problem, but I want to feed that back to them. So I learn constantly from people that tap into their spiritual parts in different ways to help them both individually and in their relationships. So I never lose the opportunity when I can learn something from a client to share that back with them. And I found that has been very helpful to helping me evolve in my own spirituality, which is obviously, again, once you think you have it all figured out, it's time to 
cash out and leave because you can always learn. You can always be more attuned both in and outside of the therapy rooms. If I have heard this discussion this last hour, and I mean, you are also give of your gifts by your service TAMFT and most past presidents of the amount of time and you were on board two separate times in a five, it's a five-year commitment to be a president-elect, president, past president, but you still, after not that much time off, have really reinvigorated and given back by heading up the spirituality and clinical practice interest network. So here in just the last couple of minutes, if I've heard more about this, tell us what a member of AMFT could get if they join this interest at network. And then people always want to continue the dialogue with the guest after they hear the show. Tell people, Chris, how they can reach you and continue the dialogue. Sure. I, as we, we are now organized on a structure of various interest networks and over the course of my time in this field, I just, I find myself bumping into people who will mention there, there's this spiritual background I have or this religious piece that we don't always talk about. One of the interesting things from some research that some folks are doing recently is they have suggested that if you ask instructors and program directors like ourselves, do you teach spirituality in your program? Oh, do we, do we do that? And if you ask students, they're like, I don't remember any of that. I think first and foremost, we're trying to create a new interest network that first and foremost will be a place where we can just have dialogue and networking and connection. As that, as more members join, we are uh, right now in the process of trying to think like, how can we start doing some initial CEU kinds of trainings, like one hour webinars so that we can bring some training as well as just some more place for conversation. I think the long-term dream would be this will certainly be way beyond me, but I would, I would love in the latter years of my life, look back and see an interest network like this that would maybe start to have once in a while in on-ground conferences where people can come together and share ideas, have these conversations, share research that they might be doing, do some training type of things and so on on a small level. That's what we're trying to do. We have more and more people that are joining. It takes a little bit of time to get some people connected. And as we're trying to build this, that those are some of the directions that we are, that we're trying to go to. I'll put in a plug that pathways to leadership outside of the therapy room AMFT is, as we talk about on the shows many times, invest in developing new leaders. So if you have an interest in this, like Chris will tell you, there's always a space to not just join, but to build your leadership through what you're interested in. So yeah, tell people how they can get in contact with you. Absolutely. That was great. I appreciate that, Eli. If anybody would want to reach me, my email is chabbin at friends.edu. That's C-H-A-B-B as in boy, E-N at friends.edu. Friends University is where I am a serving as a program director. If you'd like to call me, my number is 913-233-8706. That is a landline, so don't try to text me at that number, but email or phone would be great. I'd love to visit with anybody about these types of things and more. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast, where we relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. Thank you, Chris Haben. Really informative. I am going to use, I know, many things we've talked about this hour, including those four questions when I'm talking to my client systems around spirituality and their religious beliefs. If you want more, you can join the Spirituality and Clinical Practice AMFT Topical Interest Network. You want to go to amft.org, the Engage in Network tabs. You'll see Topical Interest Networks. You click that on, scroll down to Spirituality and Clinical Practice, SICP, and find all about them. Their mission is to advance the knowledge regarding the spiritual dimension of the human experience, to foster inclusiveness and equity across all spiritual belief systems, and promote the best practices for effective and meaningful engagement in clinical settings. They're committed to inclusion and promoting dialogue regarding spirituality among a full spectrum of spiritual and belief system. The benefits of joining 
include training and educational opportunities, as Chris was talking about, and they're going to add more as the years goes on as far as CEUs with his dream one day of a face-to-face conference, and they have a newsletter integrating topics of relative interest. You can also contact Chris directly and the interest network at spirituality at amft.org, spiritualityamft.org. And in general, we get a lot of interest as far as how do I add these engagement programs or these interest networks? I'm already halfway through my membership. Well, you can do it at your renewal period every year, but you can also do it mid-renewal cycle when you just go on the website, click join now and add the programs. If you have any questions about that, you can always call AMFT at area code 703-838-9808 during regular business hours or email them central at aamft.org. Also looking for CEUs, Tenio is your place. That is the online learning community for AMFT. Again, amft.org. You want to click on enhance knowledge and in addition to some of the great stuff we talked about today. You can also see offerings like spirituality and ethics in clinical practice. As always, if you're a member of AMFT, you get a reduced rate and you can see Robert Mars giving a talk about integrating ethical issues into spiritual care and clinical practice goes nicely with the podcast today including such areas as informed consent, confidentiality, professional boundaries, and working with spiritually and religiously diverse clients. We love hearing from you. Drop me a line. I'm at Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. You can find me at Eli Karam, E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com, where you can find everything that's going on with me, including the book that we referenced, Bringing Common Factors to Life with my colleague, current AMFT president-elect, Adrian Blow. Also, there is a new textbook slash licensure prep and review book through Springer Publishing that many of our younger listeners and pre-licensed fans of the podcast will want to check out. Please drop me a line. Follow the conversation on Twitter. The AMFT is at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. We love hearing from you. Please check out all the back installments wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm partial to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also find us at Google Play. Five seasons worth of the movers and shakers and the topics that you pair about, including what we covered today. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic. <laughs>